As we look at chapter 49 this morning, I, I got to be honest with y'all. This, uh, this is a difficult passage to preach. Not be- necessarily because the content's heavy or any of that kind of stuff, but because there, there's sort of a formula in preaching when you approach a text. There's a, you know, we're, we're taught some things about how to look at the text and develop a sermon out of it. And, and that works for, I don't know, 85% of the Bible. And then you run into passages like chapter 49 where it doesn't work at all. And what they don't do in seminary is teach you what to do with that 15%. And, um, and, the, uh, and so they, you know, they kind of leave you hanging. You don't run into those passages very often. And so... One of the things that happens is, I mean, when, when, you, when you approach a text, it's like, discover the meaning at the time for the people it was being written to, we'll flesh that meaning out, and then apply that to a 2022 audience. I mean, that's the basics of that. The problem with a chapter, uh, like chapter 49, is when you go to it and you say, what does this have to say to Christians in 2022? It messes with the approach to application the typical approach to application. The problem I run into is one of balance. Chapter 49 is Jacob's pronouncement of blessing over the 12 sons before his death. And while some of what Jacob says is just good old man wisdom on his, on his deathbed, some of it's actually prophetic. And, and these prophecies contained in this text are related to the destiny of the descendants of Jacob. What we're going to see is the, the nation of Israel uh, as a nation being established and launched here in this passage. And, and there, there's, of course, there's Messianic prophecies in here. That, um, but we also need to consider the purpose of these prophecies had to do with Jacob and their descendants. And like most prophecy, we could spend weeks looking at nitpicking the little nuances of it. Uh, y'all have been in those classes in Revelation where the, where the guy spent weeks with charting out, you know, half a verse trying to tell you that these are black helicopters that are kind of going to swoop down and take over the world, you know, that kind of thing. And he's trying to prove to you they're black helicopters. And you're like, bro, I don't think they were, man. I, I don't think he saw helicopters and called them locusts, but whatever, you do you. And so, you know, but I, you, we, you can get so deep into prophecy, you, you end up with a forest for the trees moment, right? Can't, can't see the forest for the trees. I didn't want to do that. Because you can do that in this text. I mean, you could get into things like what was fulfilled, what was not. Um, uh, we could chase hidden meanings, trace the outcome of all these sons. We could do that. I could, t- I could take a week on each son and work through the Old Testament and show you what happened to them. But that's not really the point of this passage. If you read commentaries on this passage, you'll find a lot of disagreement over minor details. And if you look at other people's sermons on this passage, you're going to find applications all over the place. So even going to some of the guys I normally go to when I'm stuck that I trust, they didn't do any better. So I was like, yeah. one guy just literally skipped this. And he's a famous pastor that I'm, I guarantee you everybody in here has at least heard one of these guys' sermons. And when he got to chapter 49, he just skipped it. And I was like, well, if he can skip it, I can skip it too. Right? And, and, but I'm not skipping it. Because if the purpose of preaching is transformation, my struggle had been to avoid the minutia and deal with the text as it is. And I only say that to prepare you that a lot of today's sermon is going to be informational rather than transformational. 
Um, we're going to consider, we're going to read, we're going to look back, and some of it will be looking forward at prophecy. Some of it's going to be maybe seem a little academic to you. Some of it may seem tedious. But either way, we're going to look at this passage for what it is. And, and we are forced to look at a lot of biblical history to get an understanding of what's being said here in these blessings and consider. But honestly, if you've been in Genesis... If you've been with us long enough to have been in Genesis through these Joseph narratives, and if you've been here the whole time, you're going to see so much of the book of Genesis come back out just in chapter 49, it'll surprise you. So let's read, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 49. Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourself together, that I may tell you what shall happen to you in the days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to your father. Sorry, listen to Israel, your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the firstfruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power, unstable as water. You shall not have preeminence, because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. You went up to my couch. Now, let's stop right here, because I want to work through these sons as individuals. If you want to know the purpose of these blessings, these prophecies, we have to keep something in mind. We have, to keep in, we have to keep in mind the theme that goes all the way back to chapter 12 of the book of Genesis. It's been the main recurring theme that frames every story since Abram became Abraham, and that is the covenant promise. Everything in chapter 49 is tied all the way back to chapter 12 in the covenant promise. We are seeing more of the covenant promise carried over. This is one more example in the book of Genesis. The, the, the promise that God will make a great nation out of Abraham and his offspring, and that they will give, give them the land of Canaan for an eternal home, and that that offspring will be like the sands of the sea, uncountable. And every blessing here is tied to that promise. You cannot remove this from the context of covenant. But chapter 49 doesn't take place in Canaan. They're in Egypt. And also, none of the blessings that are going to be stated here in chapter 49 actually happen in the lifetime of these individuals, with the exception of Joseph. What is prophesied here is what happens to their kids and grandkids as they leave Egypt. And in fact, chapter 49 starts a transition into the next book, which what's the next book? Exodus. Yes. Glad y'all got that. That was about as basic as uh, Christian questions get. What comes after Genesis? Um, so chapter 49 is starting a transition into the book of Exodus. One of the things we need to note is important as Joseph has been as important as he's been for so much of the book of Genesis, the Joseph narrative has consumed so much of the book and so much of our time. Joseph's not actually all that important by this point. At least not in relation to the prophetic future of Israel that's taking place here in chapter 49. I, I mean, you have to consider who would have been reading this the original audience would have been those who were part of the Exodus, those who came out of Egypt as slaves. And the passage here begins an announcement, a, a formal call 
that speaks to the importance of the moment where, where he says, sons of Jacob, listen to Israel, your father. That language is important. There's a, it's, it's like announcing that a, a ceremony is about to start, but the language he uses, he invokes his covenant name. The, the name he received from the vision that was given to him when he went from Jacob to Israel, that's his covenant name, and it's pointing to his covenant identity. Abram went from Abram to Abraham, so you have this, the, the similar change He's Jacob, but he's been renamed Israel. He's going to use that name, as we've seen in previous chapters. And it's a fulfillment of the promises made to his grandfather and father. As far as the future of the nation of Israel is concerned, Jacob knows that these 12 sons are the future of Israel. So he says, sons, listen to Israel, your father. And notice he speaks to Reuben first, the firstborn. And he says, Reuben is firstborn. You were born for preeminence. Now, this is, we've talked about this a lot in the book of Genesis and this, this issue of what it meant to be the firstborn. And it was so much more. It's, it's really kind of, it's difficult for us to, to have a tangible example of what that even means because nobody in here is going to leave the leave everything to the firstborn and then let him dole everything out to the, everybody else and take care of the family. But these firstborn kids here, it was vital to the, to the extension and the safety and the perfection and the furtherance of the family because the family was the economy. It wasn't, it, this, this wasn't like they had 401ks and everybody went out and got, you know, whatever dream job they had and they're off doing their thing and Dad died, left him a little money. No, the firstborn was supposed to keep the family going to take care of the family. It was, it was vital. There was a huge responsibility on these firstborns. And he says, Reuben, you were born for preeminence, but you will not have it because you sinned against the family. You sinned against me. Now, if you remember, this goes all the way back to Reuben having sexual relations with Jacob's maidservant, Billa, who is also the mother of uh, um, Reuben's would-be half-brothers, Dan and Naphtali, and he loses his place as the firstborn heir. He, he will, he'll be the head of a tribe in the future, but he's no longer the preeminent son. He lost that preeminence years before this. He loses that position because of his sin. And now, now look, all these brothers are sinners, right? I mean, they are. So what was unique about Reuben's sin? Why, why did that particular sin be the one that got him demoted from the heir, the firstborn? Well, Reuben's sin was against the family. It was against Israel, directly against Israel. And because of Reuben's position as firstborn, he had a responsibility in that family to protect so many things in the family, but one of them was the reputation of the family, and the other one was to not betray the family, which is what he did, and that sin became his lasting legacy. Now, things get really interesting in the next part of this because we see these sins of the past coming back up in these blessings. Let's look in verse 5. He, he speaks to Two brothers now, Simeon and Levi. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. 
Let my soul not come into their counsel. O my glory, let not be joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their, their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Now, do you remember the story back in chapter 34 where Shechem took Simeon and Levi's sister Dinah, they, they kidnapped her and they raped her and then had the gall to go to Jacob and say, hey, I really love your daughter. I want to marry her. Now, I know I kidnapped her. She's at my house. But if you just let me marry her, she won't even be kidnapped any longer. I mean, it's just, it's just a weird... And, and, and I'm not going to get into the whole depth of the story, but if you remember, Simeon and Levi convinced Shechem that if the only way for them to get married was if he circumcised, if, if Shechem would become circumcised in his entire household, which would have meant all his family, all his servants, the entire village, honestly, that Shechem was in charge of, you get guys get circumcised, and then that way you can marry Dinah. So they did it, and three days into their healing, Simeon and Levi go in there and slaughter them all with a sword while they're laying in bed trying to heal up. And Jacob told them back then, in chapter 34, they were wicked and violent men who had placed the entire family in jeopardy. And now, all these years later, that view, as far as Jacob is concerned, has not changed. So when it comes time for the blessing, Jacob basically says to Simeon and Levi, you are angry, you are vicious, you are violent, you are cruel, and I don't want anything to do with you. Jacob had an even deeper fear than what was taking place here because he said, I don't want my soul to be jeopardized because of what you guys did. I don't want to be involved with you in any way. And because of this, Jacob says, you will be divided and scattered. You are so violent, I'm going to scatter you because I'm terrified of what would happen if you two stay together and have kids who stay together and you just perpetuate who you are as people. You're not safe to be around. And that's exactly what happens. Simeon never held any land. And over the generations, Simeon as a people, Simeon's family ends up basically dissolving or being absorbed into Judah, into the tribe of Judah. Now, Levi's people, there's a whole host of reasons, a sermon all by itself, Levi's people end up hold, not holding any land, but out of God's sovereign decree and will, he redeems Levi's people and they become the tribe of the priests of the nation of Israel they become servants to the entire kingdom, religious servants to the entire kingdom. And then we come to Judah in verse 8. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. And from the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness who dares rouse him. The scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine 
and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine, his teeth whiter than milk, crouching between the sheepfolds. Now, when we get to Judah, who at this point, with the long absence of Joseph all these years, Judah has become the, the, the favored son in Joseph's absence. He's already become the de facto leader among the brothers. We, we've got a lot of history to look at that, and you can see that even in the exchanges that happened um, with Joseph and the brothers before they knew it was Joseph. But if you know anything about Judah and the story, you should be asking the question, but wait a minute, Reuben sinned and he didn't get anything. Simeon and Levi sinned and they, they, didn't, they weren't even part of the family any longer. But Reuben sinned too. He did. We have two, I'm not Reuben, Judah sinned too. We have two examples. Um, if you remember, Judah was the one who said, pull J, uh, Joseph out of the pit and let's sell him into slavery. I guess that's better than killing him. Maybe we're way in of here. But he also, he was the one that was tricked and ended up sleeping with his daughter-in-law. Do you remember that story from several chapters back? So it, it, the question comes up is, is Judah, what, what happens with Judah? Judah now has become the responsible son. Judah has shown up as a negotiator. Judah has shown up as protector. Judah has shown up as representative of his father. Judah had past issues. We saw that in chapter 35, but there's an amazing language here used for Judah. And if you're asking me why Judah was elevated and the others weren't, I don't have an answer for that other than God's sovereign will. But listen to what it says about Judah. He is a lion. He holds a scepter. Rulers will bow down to him. He will be so prosperous that if he wanted to, he could wash his clothes in wine and still have plenty of wine left over to drink and sell and trade. Do you realize what's being prophesied here, what this language that means? This is king language. This is ruler language. But that forces us to ask the question, why Judah and not Joseph? Right? Because I don't know about you, but if I were picking out of the brothers which one I wanted to, to become the ruler, who would you pick? I'd go with Joseph. Would you go with Joseph? Well, then we're back to two weeks ago, or last week actually, God looks at the heart. Man, and I'm not um, knocking Joseph's heart, but... God chose Judah for this moment, for this leadership, this ruling. So if we, we, we've been in the Genesis narratives now for, Joseph starts in chapter 37, I think. So we've been in the Joseph narratives now for 13 chapters, 12 chapters, 13 when we're done. It was Joseph who had the dream dreams, plural, not one, but two dreams, um, that nations would bow down to him, that the brothers would bow down to him. He's the one who went through the incredible struggles. He's the one who saved the nation of Israel from the famine because of what he had done there in Egypt. And in the overall flow of the Bible story, Joseph exists to 
to not promote Joseph, but to point out God's supernatural intervention in the life of a young nation. But let's consider the context of what's happening here in 49. Not not the context of Genesis exclusively, but the context of the nation of Israel and the Old Testament. Right now, at the moment that Jacob is speaking in this chapter, they're in Egypt. They're there because of famine. They're living in the lush land of Goshen. They're becoming richer and more prosperous every day. But they are still a family in exile. You remember, that's what Abraham tells Pharaoh. I am a sojourner here. Because my promise is not here, my promise is Canaan. They're they're in a place of weakness, not strength. And no matter how rich they are, they're still Israel in Egypt. These are still the Jews in Egypt. And we know that never goes well. Not long term. But why are they in Egypt? They're only in Egypt because of Pharaoh's respect for Joseph. But the very next book that Moses writes is Exodus. And it opens with a very telling verse. This is what it says. It says, a new king, a new people, a new generation comes along that does not know Joseph. And so what happens? They go from being aliens to slaves. That's the transition that happens between Genesis and Exodus. Exodus opens with that transition. They go from being exiles, prosperous exiles in the land of Goshen to slaves in the land of Egypt. And that group that's reading that at the time this was written, they are the slaves at the beginning of the book of Exodus them and their kids. And they need to know not just what happened to the patriarchs. They need to know, they need to be encouraged that God will keep His promise. And God has said, hey, look around you. You see what's taking place right now. Look back. This is happening through Judah. And the future is in the tribe of Judah. The kingly analogies are for Judah. And then Jacob says, To him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Now this is the first use of this type of language in Scripture, this king, ruler, dynasty language. We, if, the kingdom of Israel is born right here in chapter 49. As far as an understanding, as far as biblical theology goes, right here in 49, we see the the nation established, the kingdom established. We, we move past the man to the nation. And when Jacob refers to a nation that will draw other nations to it, there is a sense in which that points to King David and to David's generous rule and the golden age of the monarchy and all this stuff that comes up in the nation of Israel in terms of Israel and Judah and when Israel would be preeminent among the nations was under the rule of David. But of course, we know something that they didn't know, and that is that long-term, more important, 
In the sense of biblical theology, this is pointing to the throne of David, but we also know who sits on the throne of David. Anybody got a guess? It's a Sunday school answer. It's Jesus. This is the messianic theme that's appearing here in this sense for the first time in this this ruler language about the throne of David. It turns out that the fulfillment of all that was promised to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the three patriarchs, and eventually fulfilled in a king who sits on the throne, which will be known as David's throne, and from this throne will rule the nations, and from that throne will come a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Jesus Christ, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Right? Right here in chapter 49. This is where that name of Christ comes from. Judah's called a lion. Christ comes from this heritage of Judah, not Joseph. And what we, what we can do that even Jacob could not do, that even the disciples who walked with Jesus could not do, we can see how Scripture ties it together because we have the completed canon of Scripture. We have the Word to see how it all points to more than just a piece of land but it points to the eternal kingdom with Christ sitting on that throne. And the reason that matters for us is because, and we've talked about this over the last several weeks, this world is not our home. We're just a passing through. That's an old song, old Southern Gospel song. I can't remember the rest of it or I'd roll with it. Uh, Better than build me a cabin in the corner of glory land. That's all I know, all right? So... And that throne begins with Judah, not Joseph. But don't worry about Joseph. Joseph's fine. He's honored by his father. In verse, uh, let's, let's skip down to, to uh, chapter 30, I'm sorry, verse 32. And yes, I'm skipping some sons for the sake of time, and we don't really know who they are anyway. All right, so Joseph is a fruitful bow a fruitful bough by a spring. His branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attack him, shot at him, and harassed him severely, yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob, and from there in the shepherd, the stone of Israel. I want to stop and pause real quick and just point out this this section in um, um, uh, 23-24. If there was anybody in Scripture that that was... harassed more than Joseph. Um, I, I don't have him on that list, but it talks about how jo- what Joseph's re- response was. Um, he didn't even pull out his bow while he's getting shot at. He just remained unmoved, remained faithful. Verse uh, 25, by the God of your Father who will help you, by the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that crouches beneath, blessings of the breast and of the womb. The blessing of your Father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents. Up to the bounties of the everlasting hills, may they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who is set apart from his brothers. And we're going to look at 50 next week, and we're going to look at Joseph a little more, but Joseph is referred to as a fruitful bough by a spring. He's attacked. 
He doesn't seek revenge. He remains faithful. He's unmoved. He's sustained by the shepherd. He's sustained by what Jacob says, who is the mighty one of Israel, which gives us an indication of of the intimate relationship that Jacob and God had when he speaks of that name. And so Joseph is rightfully honored by his father, Jacob. It's an incredible blessing. But the the one particular thing to point out here is there is an authority promoted in this blessing. But we know that 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 authority is temporary because Joseph will have authority while the brothers are alive. But Judah is the one that will... Judah's line is the one that will have authority in the history of the nation of Israel. And so even Joseph's elevation here is temporary over the sovereign will of God with Judah. And then we get to Benjamin. And and honestly, Benjamin has been, in my mind, he's always been about eight years old. He never grew up. By this point, he probably is old, probably older than I am now. And and, uh, and we don't have a whole lot about Benjamin, but it says Benjamin is a ravenous wolf in the morning devouring the prey and at evening dividing the spoils. Like, man, what in the world am I going to do with that? Is that good? Is it bad? What does that mean? I mean, it's, it's kind of shocking. We, we, you know, uh, well, look, this ravenous wolf devours prey in the daytime, divides the spoils at night. is isn't necessarily negative because that's military language. It's a it could be used for good or evil, but we happen to know from Deuteronomy 33.12 that everything worked out well for Benjamin. Yes, he, he was a mighty, his people were mighty warriors, but they, they were faithful to the promise. And then we get to verse 28. We get to the end for the patriarch Jacob, the, the final words before his death. All these are the 12 tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with blessings suitable to him. And then he commanded them and said, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah to the east of Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place there. There they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. And when Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. If you remember from last week, Jacob made Joseph swear that when he died, he would take him back to Canaan to be buried in this tomb that he describes here. Buried with his forefathers, his his father and mother and his grandparents and his first wife. I think it's worth noting here that Jacob, although Rachel was the wife he loved, he was buried with Leah instead of Rachel because if you remember, they had to bury Rachel on the road because she died in childbirth as they were traveling back from their home to to Canaan. And now Jacob makes all the brothers accountable to that promise 
And feeling satisfied, Scripture says he breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Which means he has now finally seen the fulfillment of the promise. Because it doesn't mean he's gathered with his people in the grave. He's gathered with his people where his people are, the souls of his people are. Which is not in that grave. And I want us to consider something as we wrap up today. I don't, like I say, I don't have, I don't have, you know, here's a good so what with this text. I don't have something for you to do with this text. I, for one, I'm not sure I'm smart enough to, to do that, remain true to the text. And one, I don't even really think that's the point of this passage. I just want us to consider where this fits into biblical theology. That's all I want us to do. There are 65 books that follow this one. But so much of the meta-narrative of Scripture is found in the book of Genesis. It's, it is foundational to the Christian worldview. Every book in the Bible is important, but you don't have a Christian worldview without the book of Genesis. And, and I happen to be one of those people that, that believes what you believe about the beginning of Genesis is going to affect what you believe about everything that comes after it. It tells us so much about the relationship between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. It gives us the creation and fall narratives. It it prophesies redemption and consummation. It gives us covenant theology. And even in this passage of blessings on sons, there are so many things I just skipped over. And we see the blessing on Judah that will eventually be fulfilled in King David, established in a unified throne of Israel and Judah. And then we know of the promises to be fulfilled that there will be a need for one who can come and draw all nations to himself, all peoples. We've talked about this off and on through the book of how many times in the Old Testament it talks about the the nations, the peoples, that this is a message for the nations, not exclusively a message for the Jews, that the Jews are, are supposed to be sharing this message with the nations. And we see this blessing on, on, on Judah, and we have the entire Scripture. Can, can, we can see the forward move of prophecy, of future hope, of the one who will draw all nations to himself, to, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. If, if we didn't have this promise of Judah given in this way and this blessing, then we would not know what it means to go from Genesis 49 to John 3.16. It includes those who are in the nations that are the peoples that will be drawn to him. And this throne is inhabited by Judah and his descendants. And the staff and the scepter, and even in this blessing, says it will be eternal. It will never be without And the blessings that Jacob gives to his children are to remind the church of the wondrous and rich blessings that all people in the covenant has received down through the ages. They tie together the biblical narrative and they give us a framework for a biblical theology. But it also points to the truth of the message because something we can do with a chapter like chapter 49 that those reading it at the time it was written could not do is we can look at the Gospels, see the fulfillment of the prophecies in Christ, the fulfillment of the covenant in Christ, 
which is just more proof of the truth of the message, because now we can look back and see the prophecies fulfilled. And while Jacob and these sons could experience benefits of the covenant in the moment, how much greater are the covenant blessings on the church today because of the work of Christ Jesus? A lot. That's the answer. The answer is a lot. In fact, Paul wrote about this in Ephesians 1 when he said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Christ Jesus, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His promise, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in His Him. This is the fulfillment of 49 right here that, that Paul's talking about in Ephesians. It says, In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having be, been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, we're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire it to the praise of His glory. Paul saw the end of 49 because he saw the risen Christ. And that adoption and inheritance and fulfillment and fullness that's all there goes all the way back to those blessings that are spoken over those boys in chapter 49 before Jacob passes away. So be encouraged that you can see the truth, been handed the truth, been given the truth, and now we can look at this as just another solidification of our faith in Christ. Amen?